The first time we hired an assistant, that really is what kind of led to hiring somebody else and then somebody else and then growing the team. It really got the snowball rolling. That first key hire, that the issue is they may have to kind of be the jack of all trades. They're probably not going to be great at everything. The thought is, oh, I'm making less money by doing that, but it's no, I'm buying my time back. I want to make $200 an hour or $300 an hour. I need to be focused on that stuff and really break down those tasks if this task is something I could pay somebody $20 an hour to do, then I shouldn't be doing it. And coming up with a list and figuring out that list and then you have a job description and then you go hire that person. I mean, and once I think people start approaching their business like that and really treating it almost like, you know, a CEO and then you can kind of roll in your time management to it and really focus on what you do best. This is the We Love Real Estate podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 267 of the We Love Real Estate podcast with Sean Pan. On today's episode, we have Justin Bosak back on the show. Justin is a partner and owner of Remax Revolution, a real estate brokerage located in New Jersey. In this episode, he'll share the challenges that he faced when starting his company and how he was able to massively grow it during the pandemic. He'll talk about why you should be hiring a team as soon as you can so that you can grow faster. He'll also talk about his social media strategy and how it helps him in his business. So if you want to learn how to effectively hire a team for your company's success, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and you need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show, and I'll see you next week. All right, Justin, welcome back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on again. For those of the listeners who haven't heard you before, can you go ahead and introduce yourself again and let us know who you are and what you do? Sure thing. My name is Justin Bozak. I am a partner and owner of Remax Revolution, located at the Jersey Shore. That's Wall Township, New Jersey. We have been open for about three years now as a brokerage. Before that, we were operating as a team called the Ocean Six Group. It's one of the top teams in New Jersey. We kind of took that and expanded on it and, uh, you know, turned it into a brokerage. Yeah. So it's been about two years since you were last on the show. Do you want to give us a quick update of, I guess, what's changed and what's new since the past few years? Right. So obviously pandemic hit. So <laughs> great way to kind of, uh, you know, roll in your first full year of running a brokerage. So, you know, there was a little, uh, pause for concern on some things as far as marketing, advertising and a lot of the money that we're spending for stuff. But we kind of just kept pushing ahead within that year of 2020. We actually ended the year doubling the size of our office, which was fun. And then the year after that, which was 2021, we did the same thing, doubled uh, again without recruiting. Um, and we were actually uh, just awarded the REMAX Awards dinner uh, just was last week, uh, New Jersey Brokerage of the Year for REMAX. And we were so surprised because, you know, that's not what you're in the business fur, but it was cool that they recognized that we were doing things differently. And we were growing, I guess, when a lot of other brokerages weren't. Were you surprised that there was such an uptick in real estate sales once COVID hit? Yeah. I mean, our, our area is kind of like a suburb of, of New York City. So we're like 60 miles outside of the city and a lot of the major cities in North Jersey as well. A lot of the people that were in the cities didn't feel the need to be there. They you know wanted more space. You have people that are obviously going remote and need you know, an office space or something like that. And uh, 
you know, figured if I don't need to be in the office, what am I doing here in this little apartment? Let me go down south where uh, it's a little bit more open. Things were a little bit more open down where we're at. Just, you know, we're less on top of each other. It's, uh, you know, it's more of a rural area by the beach. So, yeah, I mean, the people just came down in droves. It, it, it's been insane. We have seen a similar thing in California, especially in San Francisco. People were spending $1.3 million, $1.5 million for a 1,000 square foot condo where you have to pay like $700 or $900 a month in HOA dues. And they're like, well, if there's a shutdown, I don't have to be here. Why am I paying all this money? Why can I spend the same amount of money and get a huge house over in the East Bay, which is like 20, 30 minutes away from San Francisco? Even myself. Like, so we recently moved to Dallas from California. And that's been interesting, right? Like our entire home purchase price is less than a down payment for a normal home in the Bay Area. So it's like, yeah, this is shock, right? But we still have our Bay Area wages. You know, we still have our full-time jobs. That's amazing. But now we bring it to Texas and we can now feel like our dollar goes way further. So it's insane. Yeah. And that's, that's really throughout the country too. I mean, you speak with different brokers and I do from all over. And yeah, it seems like every, everywhere outside of like LA, New York, San Fran. Seems like everybody's thriving, you know, so, but even, even the city now is starting to come back a little bit. They're starting to uh, do a little bit better with sales because you're seeing, I guess, some international people are starting to buy uh, back in, in those areas, which is really kind of what funnels that area. And it's kind of a, it's funny how migration works because international goes to New York and, you know, I think San Francisco and LA, it's the same thing. And then the people from, you know, LA to get more from their money, they sprawl out and, and move to other areas. And same thing with New York, they move out to, in New Jersey or Connecticut, and then it's the migration of the people that are at the Jersey Shore. They're like, oh, well, I sold my house for X. I can't buy a house now here. So then they're going to South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. So it's super interesting because it really, we've known that that was kind of like a progression, I think, in people's lives. And to see it almost on steroids when COVID hit just happened rampantly. And it's insane because even, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, same thing. Just the prices are booming. It's insane. Yeah. I have some rental properties that I purchased five years ago, and I really bought them for pure cash flow plays. But because of the pandemic, because of the booms in those markets, the property values have doubled in price over those past five years. So I'm here thinking, wow, I'm an intelligent investor. You know, I, I chose wisely, but in reality, it's just these economic forces that no one really foresees, and then we get rewarded for it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I always tell this to certain people, you know, maybe they get told they're lucky or something or, you know, oh, I can't do it because you started earlier or this and that. It's like, you just got to be in the game, right? If you own some housing and then some things happen that are outside of our control because you can't control an entire market, even even if you're, I guess you're a big, you know, brokerage firm or something that acquires, you know, apartments and things like that, you still can't control the market. Uh, it's impossible. So things are just going to happen. You just got to be in the game. You know, same thing with real estate. You have your license and you're just in the market at the right time, you know, you could do well. Yeah, a lot of my friends who are agents did really well in 2021. They had like record breaking years. As you may know, I'm a hard money lender. So we do a lot of loans. Like this past year, we had record breaking numbers. Basically, every month was a new record breaking month. But now, in the past few weeks, interest rates have increased quite a bit. Have you seen any changes in the market because of rising interest rates? No, not yet, because all, we're, we're at such a shortage. We're right now about a third of what you would see active on the market. The supply is really about, it's, it's about a month's supply, where normally you'd see four to five months of supply. So yeah, something's got to give. It's, it's pretty crazy out there still. You know, we thought maybe going into winter, we'll see some more properties at the market and things will, you know, settle down as New York kind of gets back open and things start going away, but, uh, it hasn't stopped. So. When you say you have one month of inventory and normally you have four to five months, 
when was that? Like, when were you guys usually seeing four to five months of inventory? Um, so that was pre-COVID for the most part. I mean, as 2020 hit the summer, we started seeing those numbers, you know, start to drop down to, to three months, then to two months, then to one month. I mean, one, one month is insane. I mean, in, in the markets were, you know, 2000, maybe 18, 2017, you know, you were probably about six months. Uh, 2012, you're like a year of, you know, in, inventory on the market. And that's kind of when things started turning around, like 2013, we started seeing the numbers drop down. Yeah. So I do a monthly market analysis of the Bay Area uh, for my YouTube channel. So I'm always looking at the numbers and we're seeing around, you know, 14 days to one month for most of the uh, property types over in the Bay Area. And yeah, in most markets, it is three months. Like that's a normal buyer's market. It's normal. But then when you hit one month, there's just not enough inventory. You know, people are making cash offers. People are making offers 20% above asking price. No contingencies. Are you starting to see that over where you're at as well? Oh yeah. I mean, those are the deals that are winning by far. So, and, and what we've seen too is the mortgage companies getting creative. We have a couple of mortgage companies that are um, making the buyers cash buyers and actually acquiring the property for the buyers and then uh, doing a double sale and having the buyer just pay the rent through transfer fee in order just to get the mortgage because they saw that the, they were having a tough time where they were writing pre-approval after pre-approval after pre-approval and the buyers kept on losing. So they figured out a way, they got funding and they said, let's just make all of our buyers cash buyers, you know, and even for like FHA buyers or uh, VA buyers, they're, they're doing that program for those buyers now too. So it's just all about innovation, right? It's just, it, here's a problem, you know, and uh, as, a, as a mortgage company, if you can get on the front end of that, you can kind of keep your deal flow up, you know, because obviously there was a boom with, with refis and we know everybody in the mortgage industry over the last two years Everybody's doing well, way beyond what you could ever imagine, because it's not just you're getting the real estate deals. Obviously, you're getting everybody and their mother wanting refi. So now that the rates are going up, refis are going to drop. And now that everybody refied out, also, you know, refis are going to drop. So uh, it's just a cool thing to help buyers kind of stand out and win offers and get a fair price, right? If you're a cash offer versus a 5% buyer that maybe has to overpay, you could be saving $10,000, even though you got to pay that, you know, the rate to transfer fee, you know, twice could be worth it. That's interesting. I've only heard of like brokers doing that. Like there are some brokerages out here who I guess want to be competitive and win more clients to, you know, help buy and sell homes. And so they'll say, yeah, like we'll help you cover that front end. We'll buy your house with cash, make a cash offer, and then you can take your time refinancing with us. But I've never heard of a lender doing that. So it's very interesting that they have those programs out there. It's funny because we actually talked about it with a lender back right, right when the pandemic was happening, doing some kind of program because we uh, we wanted to get into the fix and flip market. And then obviously that's crazy because there's just less and less of those now because of no foreclosures and stuff. So we had a different angle to it. And you know, at that point in time, they thought, uh, too much liability. It's too, too much maybe of a conflict of interest, but they found a way around it. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, as, as a hard money lender, I'm seeing my own interest rates increase by over half a percent within the past month. And for me, like that kind of worries me a little bit, more so for my clients. You know, on the one hand, I want to do more loans for them. Like, oh yeah, here, here's a hard money loan, no problem. But on the back end, I'm like, dude, if they don't make money, then first of all, it looks bad on us, right? Because we gave them the loan. And then second of all, like it sucks for them. And then if they lose money, they won't come back to us. So it's like, man, I feel bad. Like they're in a situation where the market is super hot. You have to bid way above asking price if you are having a property on the market. And then on the back end, because of the rising interest rates, the end buyer may or may not be able to pay what you expect your ARV to be. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of a scary situation for some people, unless they really know what they're doing, I guess. Yeah. It's one of those things, right? You never know when the other side of the market is, is going to show its head. 
we saw Zillow get out of the market. Obviously, Zillow's uh, algorithms were off and they were overpaying for houses and they had to shut that whole system down. So is that, did they shut it down, you know, because it was wrong on the front end or did they shut it down because they saw something else kind of coming, you know, on the back end or in the future? It could be both. My uncle is actually looking at buying some investment properties for Airbnb. Obviously, that's a super hot market, especially in uh, Florida, Tennessee, upstate New York, again, open air areas. But when the country opens back up and people can international travel, what's going to happen with that market? He kind of saw some indicators where he thought people were over leveraged on those properties. Uh, They're taking uh, loans out, you know, 10% down and pulling that money out of their house to get the 10% down. So he's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do now, you know, because he spent too much time researching. That was a problem. And then, you know, he's like, I missed the boat now. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's like, I mean, it's like you said, you don't know, right? And uh, anything about Airbnb is like, Airbnb is a very, very popular topic right now. Short-term rentals are the hot topic for real estate investing. But even that leads to some more questions like, well, what happens when you have too many Airbnbs out there and you're not getting the daily, nightly rate that you're expecting? And, you know, what if you have to then convert it to a long-term rental and the numbers don't pan out? What's going to happen? Do you go, like, do you lose your business model? So anyways, for me, I think people should just be more cautious during these times when you have increasing interest rates, because I've seen slowdowns. You know, I've been personally impacted by an increase of interest rates back in 2018, where my flips uh, didn't sell for where I expected them to. And I lost a lot, you know, and it was a very painful experience that I had to learn the hard way. And I just hope no one else has to face the same problems because that was definitely a challenging time for me. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, so I guess too, it's, you know, can you actually be flexible? You know, so I guess if you had kept those flips in 2018 and just rented them. I would have made so much more money if I sold them in 2021. But unfortunately, I did have them on a hard money loan. And if I had just one property, okay, maybe I could hold on to it. But I had multiple properties at the same time. So like, there's no way. I was paying like $30,000 a month in holding costs. That's the flexibility part of it is, you know, maybe we're going to save this property just, you know, just in case, just to, to cash flow and start that cash flow, you know, a couple of years, you can start pulling equity. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of where the market's going to have to go because the, the rental market, just the regular rental market's super hot too. I mean, there's just nothing available. So I think that's something that there's still life there. You know, people are looking to invest, you know, do your research, obviously, but uh, look at where all the big manufacturing companies are going and big businesses are going. I kind of predicted this two years ago, you know, I mentioned it on different podcasts. So I think, I, you know, you're going to see a lot of these companies get out of the city because they're going to figure out that they can use people, even if they're 80% productive, to remote work and still save money, even if they're not 100% productive as they would be in the office, just because... You know, your Manhattan office, you know, cost you $60,000 just to lease it, plus all the expenses to run the office. I think big companies figured out by, you know, they had to, how to operate without having people in the office. And then they're going to figure out, well, maybe we don't need 20,000 square feet. Maybe we can operate with just 4,000 square feet because, you know, we just need, we need server space and we still need technical support and things like that. And, And they probably should be in the office. But outside of that, People can just, you know, Zoom. Everybody's used to it now. So it's going to be interesting to see if companies start to kind of move to some other areas. So, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina, I know is an area that's super hot. I have a couple of friends down there uh, and they're seeing a lot of companies from the north kind of uh, relocate. And again, because you could actually pay somebody less money there than you can in New York City. So I think that's that's still going to happen, especially as we're kind of coming out of this. I think people are going to just figure out that the office space maybe doesn't have to be in a high high dollar area. Some companies want it. Google loves it, I guess. Google thrives because I think it's more culture and environment and stuff like that. 
but I know I think it's I think a big change just happened, you know, with just how people are going to operate business moving forward. It's actually easier to operate too. Like, so most of my team for the hard money side, we are all remote. Like, we are scattered across the country. And some people might think, oh, well, they're working from home. You don't know if they're working really like eight hours a day. They could be watching TV while working and stuff. But at the end of the day, like our teammates get a lot of the work done, and they work at midnight, you know, like one in the morning. And if they worked in the office, they would not be working at those hours. And they're working hard to get these things done. So I mean, I think it's been interesting. I think we definitely need to have better work-life balance. But I mean, other than that, I think it's been great. Like again, we're able to live somewhere else with a lower cost of living expenses, but still maintain our Bay Area wages. It's amazing. Takes a lot of stress off, I think, right? So you're not as worried because your overhead's less. You know, the employees, they're not as worried because maybe they can live closer to their family or live in an area where they don't have to commute, you know, and the stress of commuting and the time commuting and things like that. So it actually, I think, you know, for, for mental health too, I think it's going to be a good thing, you know, long term. There's no micromanaging too, because like, again, as long as you get your tasks done, it's fine. Who cares if you happen to be watching TV while doing it, right? Yeah. And listen, the programs are there, you know, so using a Slack or Voxer, things like that to communicate with the team and to make sure tasks are being done. The technology is there and, and now we have a reason to implement it. And it's also saving money, I think, for a lot of businesses. Yeah. So let's talk about your brokerage and how you're able to grow so much in this relatively short period of time. What do you think differentiated you guys from the other brokerages? Like you said, you guys won the award for Remax, whereas other companies may not have been doing as well during the same tier of time. So it's really trying to take off the plate of our agents, the things that aren't cost productive, you know, where they aren't as efficient. And it, it's uh, transaction coordinators was one of the key things that, that we did. You know, we hired one, we had one for the team, then we rolled it out to the office because we said, okay, the system works. This is great. We love it. You know, a lot of agents feel that, oh, I want to be involved in everything and I got to do everything. Well, you don't have to do everything. Um, you can have somebody in your office chasing deposit checks, making sure inspections are done, making sure appraisals are done um, while you're out, you know, running comps and meeting with clients and making phone calls. You're the best person to do that as a sales agent. And you should be director, I guess, of, of your business and allow other people uh, to help you, you know, with chasing those tasks. Back in the day when, when I didn't have that, you know, I was working so much more on the computers, following up with emails and things like that until 11, 12 o'clock. Uh, at night to make sure things are done, doing things proactively, sending out emails to follow up with stuff that I knew was going to come up in the next day. Um, and now I don't have to worry about it at all. I have the ability to kind of do what I do best, and that's meeting meeting with clients. And uh, that that was one of the key things for our office. Most offices don't offer that. A lot of teams have implemented that into their systems, but you don't really see offices doing that. So not everybody wants to run a team. So we felt that if we can kind of Create all the aspects that make the team productive and efficient and morph it into the brokerage and allow the agents that want to be single agents that don't want to deal with the team because there's a lot of them. <laughs> we proved it because we have 137 agents now and, you know, three quarters of them are not team agents. They're, they're just single agents, but they have that back end help. And it's a choice, right? It's not something that's mandatory. They pay for it and uh, it's a per deal basis and it comes out of the closing. We hired somebody to do signs and set up for open houses. Uh, we have somebody that does drone and Matterport in-house. That lowers the cost. Um, it was double the price. I mean, we were really doing it almost at, at a break-even. Uh, but again, to lower the expenses uh, for, for the agents uh, and add that service and know that, hey, if I need something done for me too, I could also get it done the next day and get it quick. 
having uh, two marketing people now, you know, started with one, now we're at two, to do the postcards, to do the mailers, to get the lists for either cold calling for Red X to set you up, to set you up with the listing, uh, put the listing into the systems, to set up your showing time. So all the things that really, if you really sit down and think about all the things that you have to do on a listing, and it takes up time, it takes hours. And as a realtor, even just putting in your listing, a lot of times you just get bogged down because you're dealing with negotiations and you're dealing with all these different things coming. Your phone's ringing. Somebody wants to make an appointment. They have questions about your listing. And then you turn around and before you know it, you spent two and a half hours trying to put in a listing. Hand it off to somebody that could get it done in 30 minutes and then just do it again, what you do best. You know, and if you communicate and, and they get the synergy as far as like how you want to do things, it becomes easy. A lot of it is just releasing, I guess, that control over everything. And once you do that, I feel that you open up more of your time, you get your time back. And uh, I mean, we actually sit down with our agents and also do what we call um, just an accountability session for uh, their deals and their transactions to break down what is their average dollar per hour. And we break it down and, and where are your leads coming from and what are you best at? We don't tell all of our agents to do the same thing. We want them to focus on what they're best at. So um, if you're great on the phones, okay, we're going to teach you how to make more phone calls. Uh, if you're not good at paperwork, okay, we're going to teach you this. Um, and it's really just everything is, is custom for each agent in the office to come in and really thrive and do things you know the way they want to do them. Yeah, I mean, that's great that you have the support system. I know like as a loan officer, sometimes I have to do a lot of my own back-end paperwork or a lot of follow-up. And that takes a lot of time out of my day versus doing something like this, where I can make a podcast and I can speak to hundreds of people about hard money loans, which is better time spent than back-end office work on one particular deal. So I would say, I guess you would say, in summary, the support you give your agents is why you're able to grow so much versus the other brokerages who say, you know what, you have to do everything on your own. And yeah. Right. Figure it out, right? You know, like <laughs> it's your problem. We're just here to take your money. You know, we have 10 staff now. We just hired a recruiter. Um, and we're going to hire more. You know, our, our ratio is really good for, for staff. That's one of the things and, and reasons why um, we won Brokerage of the Year. We really hit all the metrics that they were looking for. Deals per agent, you know, was another big one. We don't really have a lot of agents that are just license hangers. If you're new and you're coming to our company, um, you're going to go on a team and you're going to learn. Somebody's going to give you leads and they're going to train you. And, you know, the expectation is if you're not doing uh, at least 10 deals within the first year, you know, or on the cusp of doing 10 deals in the, in the first year, you know, then you should probably not be here. We're looking to make this more volume based, more efficient machine. And that allows us to have the staff and have the people to help. And, uh, it's just, it's something that we knew that worked. We, we started in a brokerage back in, uh, 2004, uh, me and my two business partners. And they had a lot of, they had some similar systems set up, not exactly what we were doing. But we saw that if people kind of stayed in their lane and focused on what they did best, they were more productive and more efficient. And really the first time we hired an assistant, that really is what kind of led to hiring, you know, somebody else and then somebody else and then growing the team that really got the snowball rolling. That first key hire, you know, that the issue is, is they may have to kind of be the jack of all trades. They're probably not going to be great at everything. And or maybe it's a, a synergy with you maybe doing some stuff and they're doing the other stuff, like the paperwork, like you said. You could hire somebody for probably $15, $18 an hour to do it. Now, the thought is, oh, I'm making less money by doing that, but it's no, I'm buying my time back so I could go do the dollar productive. I want to make $200 an hour or $300 an hour. I need to be focused on that stuff and really break down those tasks. 
what is this task costing me? If this task is something I could pay somebody that $20 an hour to do, then I shouldn't be doing it. And coming up with a list and figuring out that list, and then you have a job description, and then you go hire that person. I mean, there's certain things that I do, and I question, how much is this going to cost me? I just, like the other day, I drove an hour both ways to pick up something, but I knew I could save $1,000 by doing it. So if the number was 200 I was not driving two hours. Uh, it was an hour each way, two hours to go get it, because I know my time is worth more than that. And once I think people start approaching their business like that and really treating it almost like a, a you know a CEO, it really just there's levels to it, and it, then you can kind of roll in your time management to it and really focus on what you do best. You know, sometimes I even think that it's worth paying someone to do it because if you don't have someone else doing it, then it won't even get done in the first place. Like as an example, I have a great team of virtual assistants over in the Philippines, and you know I pay them a decent salary and. Even though sometimes the activities they generate don't earn me money right away, it's the fact that at least it's getting done. You know, like I had on my to-do list a task to set up my email systems where I would have like email flow for people who come onto my uh, subscription list, but I didn't do it for two years. Whereas now I paid someone to do it and it's done within like two months. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, and that's where having key people, you know, that know what they're doing. And, you know, like we do a lot of social media. Um, and my guy, Angel, he's brilliant. I mean, it's great when we get into a space and start kind of creating things and figuring things out. But I know he's going to implement and he's been able to scale his business because of that, too. And just I don't need to know everything, right? I don't need to know exactly how the audience works in the back end of the Facebook ad system. But we'll talk about it. But I don't need to know every nuance, you know, about it. You know, I, I want to take the time to learn to an extent of I just need to know how my money's being spent. And anything else that happens like after that, trial or error, I don't really <laughs> come back to me, right? And we'll we'll talk about it and then we'll we'll make moves or we'll make changes. But uh, you know, I think that's the thing is again delegating and having key people around you and letting people actually prove to you that they can actually do the job. Now, they may not do it as well as you in the beginning, but how else are they gonna learn? You know, and that's really the key. And that's how you really build a business, you know, and, and lead people, you know, because if you're not training to replace yourself, then I look at it like this, right? I didn't validate us as broker owners until we got to the point where now we're opening a second office. Now I feel like we've proved to people that we've done it and we've become successful. And I mean, obviously, we've got brokers of the year. So <laughs> there's some people that obviously uh, agree with that. But I look at it until I can replace myself or replace my office or add another office. I feel like I haven't gotten there yet. And it's the same. I looked at the same way with my team, right? Until I could have my team, me refer out listing leads to my team, I felt like I couldn't move on. I got to train them. I got to make sure that they're good. So that way I could take my time and then move it to other higher dollar cost things, creating systems and processes. And, you know, we're opening a title company. We're actually going to open a, I'm going to call it a media company. <laughs> it's separate from the, from the real estate, but it's going to intertwine um, with the real estate and some other local businesses and stuff. But it allows me to now have the time to do that. And I had to actually look at, um, again, what are the things that are weighing me down? I go through everything at the, uh, around September in the year. All right, I'm going to take this 25% of this kind of business and I'm actually going to refer it out to other agents on the team or, or in the office. So it's like making a rule for myself. If I want to get a raise, then I can't do X. And what you figure out is, you know, I've got to average $700,000 per deal. So I can't take a $300,000 deal or $400,000 deal or $500,000 deal. And really no buyers anymore. Last year, I only did five buys and they were all either personal friends or it was like a listing client. And like, 
it made sense because they were moving up. So I was like, okay, the house I'm listing is 300, but they're buying for 700. So I average it out there that way. But if not, you know, and it's not that I don't want to work with that person. It's just, I know it's my time is so important. And if I want to give myself a raise, I got to stop doing that bottom 25% and then look at the top and figure out how to add, you know, more revenue or more money to the top end of my business, whether it's chasing million dollar deals or doing more new construction and or ancillary services through the company. I fail on that one. Sometimes people ask me, Sean, what's your minimum loan amount? And I'm thinking, man, I really don't want to do a loan under $150,000 because it's just not worth our time. Like we get paid uh, differently based on the volume, but the work is the same, right? And it's like, I'd rather do a million dollar loan versus a $100,000 loan that's more complicated and high leverage. You know, it's like so much work for a small amount. You got to create those rules. And, and once you create that rule, you're going to notice every single year that it's going to be 250 and it's going to be 350 that it's going to be 450 because what you're going to do is you're going to buy your time back and now you're going to know how to locate the people that actually need the million dollars need the 900 focus on that because you know just like you said you're going to get bogged down with all the paperwork and the process like the time to do that loan is the same to do the million dollar loan take that time invest it to five more million dollar loans and then that opens it up because you know it's what was that 8x almost exactly yeah so let's go back into social media. You say that you're doing that and you have a guy that's helping you with that. You know, as you know, we, we do social media as well. And without our team, well, we got lucky with the algorithm, but without our team, right, it would be very hard because we have to then, we have to record it. We have to have someone edit it. We have to upload thumbnails, blah, blah, blah. I really look up to guys like Ryan Pineda. He has a whole crew of people coming up with ideas, making their thumbnails. And all he has to do is sit down and record. Like ideally, that's what we would all love to do, right? Just sit down, tell me what to say and record and the team handles the rest. What are you up to? And like, what's kind of your social media strategy? Yeah. So number one, obviously is you got to create the content to start. So, you know, that's where I feel people get stuck, you know, cause that, that is truly the hardest part is committing to doing it because you can have a social media guy, but if you're not actually creating the content as an agent, you know, or whatever business you're in, then there's only so much he can do for you. It's funny. I actually sat down with financial advisor that, you know, writes all my insurances and stuff. And, and he was stuck. And, uh, you know, I said, well, show me what you're doing, you know, and he had a business page, right? So that number one, no, no, uh, Hootsuite was synced up to it. I'm like, where is the organic content? Like, there's nothing really here. You know, the key is you have to be able to kind of show yourself to your audience uh, so they can see your personality and provide value. Don't allow somebody to kind of create the content for you. Like it is good to have somebody do a little bit here and there, right? Doing the thumbnails is key, but having your face on it or having your quote on it, that's going to bring it up to the, to the next level and not in somebody else's words or somebody else's thoughts. So yeah, we have, um, I wouldn't say on staff. I mean, everybody's kind of freelance at this point, but yeah, we have two videographers. Uh, we've got a couple editors. We have our social media guy who actually has a team now behind him. He started out where he was just running social media ads and chat bots with us. We were like one of his first clients and now he has a whole team and it was almost like we kind of forced it on him. I always, you know, I want this, I want that. So we did podcasts, we do a TV show. So now it's like, now we want to do YouTube. So he's got to kind of learn and grow with us, but it's been great because he gets into that creative mindset with me as far as like, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to unlock it? How are we going to execute it? And, uh, you know, so, so that allows me to learn too. It's been fun because I like to build and I like to learn. And it's one of those things where it's not always about the money. 
a lot of times it's just, it's about the process too. You know, the process is fun. Building is fun. Uh, it's funny. I sent him a picture last night. <laughs> I love building like Legos and stuff for my kids. I built this big chain track set. Huge. Like my wife was pissed at me. She's like, what are you doing? It's too big and I got to break it. But I don't necessarily like to play with it. <laughs> I like to build it and then that's it. I don't want to play with it. I just set it up for everybody else, right? And then I kind of looked at it because I had a thought. And I'm like, oh my God, I run my business the same way. I like to build all these things. I like to try it and make sure it works. And then I want to let it go because I want to build something else. And I want to move on to the next thing. And it's really now just stacking, stacking all these different things. And I was explaining to my wife last night about just the media company that we're building and how that is another stack where we keep on stacking these things and integrate it into the company. Like, why would you ever leave? That's why we're growing. Nobody's leaving. Nobody's leaving and everybody's asking, like, what are they doing? Like, what's going on? Like, and everybody's business, they keep doing more and more and more. And everybody's happy because they're not doing the things that they don't want to do. So I think we're keeping people actually in the business that may have actually blown out. We're making their jobs easier and we're stacking all these things that I mean, it takes years for other brokerages to, to really catch up and or a lot of money and to know, you know, exactly what we're doing. So yeah, I mean, we're always looking to innovate and, you know, I have no doubts we're going to be involved with the metaverse at some point and we're going to have blockchain integrated with deals. I mean, this is stuff that we're talking about now and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we incorporate it? Like, how would that actually be awesome for the agents and for the clients? And we figured out a few things, but, you know, I have some other things on my plate that I got to finish before I get there. Very cool. Can you tell me a little bit about that media company? Like, what do you envision that to be? So it's, it was actually a vision like six years ago. And it was funny because one of my business partners that, that isn't with us anymore, he's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> now it's like, I see people somewhat doing it. So yeah, I mean, it's just creating contents on, you know, uh, top five list of restaurant, top 10 list of things to do in the summer or in this month, uh, the best farms to visit in New Jersey, the best beaches ranked. Doing uh, one-on-ones with maybe some restaurant owners, sit down, give me the behind the scenes, the best things about this town, you know, the the coolest parks, you know, in a certain town or in a certain county, ranking them. I want to really be able to kind of bring the lifestyle of each town, each county, each area, each section, and then also the seasonal things that happen and be able to put that stuff on video. So there are, uh, you know, websites that maybe have like links and lists but nobody's really doing it on video. So, you know, for one thing, for me, um, my son has special needs. He's uh, eight years old and he has autism. So he loves parks, right? So we're always looking to do different parks though. And I'm always like, not sure, like, is this park going to be good for him? Because like, he's the kind of kid, he'll look down from 12 feet up and be like, uh, you know, can I jump? <laughs> so, so I have to be super, super careful with where we go and what we do. Cause I'm, I have to literally run and follow him and make sure he's okay and stuff. And now he's doing, you know, a, a little bit better navigating parks and things like that. But, um, knowing and seeing maybe the video of how it's set up and what else is there. So that we can kind of plan our day, you know, around maybe going to that park. And then also maybe going to a new restaurant in that area around where that park might be. So it's something that I, I, I feel it was always a guess for because nobody created the content to figure that stuff out and having almost like a third party as well. So, I mean, my goal really is to have a lot of my agents be the ones doing video. So we're actually doing video now. We're part of um, the American Dream Show. We've done a bunch of episodes there and we've kind of started doing that. And we're kind of just now feeling it out and saying, like, 
oh wow, like we can do a lot more uh, with this. So it's going to be building a website, having a copywriter, putting together maybe some of the stuff we do on video, translating it into uh, a blog or maybe a newsletter, things like that. And then just kind of having other businesses help sponsor. And then also we're going to run ads for them. You know, so I have a lot of friends that are in business and they don't know how to run social media ads. They want to try to learn how to do content, but they don't know how to. And it's almost like, well, we'll help you do it. And it'll all be part of this system. And uh, we'll just kind of amass a nice database. And we're going to share this data together and be able to kind of identify like what kind of lead is this? And then who wants to market and advertise to this lead on the back end? You know, so it's uh, it's something that it just started out as, hey, we're just going to shoot content and just speaking with my social media guy, we just always take it into these other other levels as far as like, what, what can we do with this and how can we execute it and how can it be good for all parties? I want everybody to win, obviously. You know, you got to have great content that people want to see. You want to have your sponsors, you know, buy in and see the value to it. And then also, uh, well, my agents to see the uh, advantage of being on video and getting out there and being maybe the, the person in their town or in their uh, subdivision. Uh, or even in the county, or, or maybe they do something specific, right? Or maybe they're great at archery and they want to, you know, do something specific on that. Or maybe, you know, my one guy, he's always on the beach with his Jeep, you know, maybe he could go over like the best spots to do that. You know, I want really to pull out all, all that gold that people don't know unless you have those conversations with those specific people. We're all experts in some way at something, you know, so translating that all into a website, newsletter, and then, uh, yeah, just see where it goes from there. I mean, I ultimately want to have a, a reporter, you know, that's going to go out and go out to the different uh, local events, maybe the fair or whatever it may be that, that's going on and go out there and interview people and create content that way. And they're third party, you know, not me. I, I, I want to build it, right? I'm doing it now, right? I'm shooting video now, but I want to pass this along to other people to do it because at the end of the day, I know uh, this is going to help their business. And I don't want to be in the business of listings and buyers long term. So why would I be the face of it? I just want to help the agents kind of take it, run with it, and then help other businesses. Yeah. So I guess the thought process is you're going to create this media company to I guess, showcase your local market so that when people are searching for it, or I guess they know you guys as a resource of like things to do in the area. So when it comes down to you know buying or selling a house in the area, they'll think of you guys first. And they'll approach you guys because you guys are the experts who know everything about the town. Yeah. And I think it's just that much easier for people to kind of be like, regardless, you could be talking about something like, I don't even care about that, but this person's cool. I really like that. That's it. That's that's all it really comes down to is personality. Yeah. It kind of goes back to what you said earlier about how you had a friend who is creating a business page for their Instagram, right? I've learned that the hard way too. I created a Sean underscore everything REI business page where I had my virtual assistant take video clips from the podcast or video clips from our YouTube channel, some BS quotes or whatever, and then post it. But it's not the same, right? When you're looking at a business page, it's not you. You're not making stories on there. You're not posting about your own personal life. People tend to not care about business pages that are just straight up like quotes or information. It's like, it's not that interesting. But when you can intertwine it with your own personal life, that's great. I had a friend, she's also a you know, top real estate agent here in the Bay Area. And she came to the same conclusion, like her professional business page was being followed by other people who are also professionals, like title agents, insurance companies, you know, maybe other agents, but not clients. So it really did her no good. Whereas her own personal profile had her friends, her family members, seeing her on a daily basis, seeing her work. And when it came time for them to actually want to buy a house, then they would reach out to her directly through there. 
Yeah, I think it's just so much easier to manage, and you don't have to worry about the the red tape and everybody. You know, I had multiple agents in the office that had business pages, and we had one. We still have one, and I mean, it's got like nine thousand people following, but the engagement's like it's almost nothing. You know, it's like, and and I could post on there, and I could do it, but it's like I'm not. I have a whole team, right? It's a team page. It's the Ocean Six Group page. I don't want to be the voice behind the whole Ocean Six Group page. At the same time, out of those nine thousand people, a lot of them are following everybody individually anyway. So if everybody's doing, putting out their own personal content, creating their own personal brand, sharing, you know, not just what's going on in business, but in life, people are going to line up with certain things. You know, people may disengage with certain things because maybe they're not in the market, but they just like you. And if you show them like, this is how I am, or this is what's going on in my life, you know, it's, it's your top of mind. And, and this is the one thing I told my financial advisor was like, there's probably people that you've done business with in the last three or four years that have completely forgotten your name. They don't even remember your name. They'd refer you, but they forgot your name because you're not present. You need to be present. You need to be showing up somehow. And it could be just, you know, hey, your, your emails are going out. That's great. And he's like, but everybody's deleting them. Only 9% of people are opening them. I said, but your name's on it, right? So they see your name. They're not going to forget your name. Let them delete it. Let them unsubscribe. doesn't matter. It's just, uh, it's branding. But... Finding people, connecting with people with where they want to be connected with, you know, Instagram, Facebook. I said, get, get on the whiteboard, man. Show me what's going on with the market. Show me what's happening with the stock market. I remember when, uh, me, Kevin was, uh, was first starting, you know, back in the day and it was all about real estate, right? And now look at what he's doing. He just kind of found his niche and what he was passionate about. And I mean, the kid blew up and it's just educating people. And a lot of the stuff that he teaches is, is pretty basic. You know, but his market, you know, is the younger generation and they're learning, you know, so it's figuring out who will connect with you the most and then figuring out a way to educate them or, or meet them on a platform that they actually want to meet you on. So Instagram, obviously, and TikTok are going to react differently than, than Facebook, uh, and YouTube. So you've got to have a good understanding of all the different channels and then figure out how to communicate with people on those channels. Yeah. From my experience, when it comes to service based businesses, Instagram seems to be like, the number one, like the best one. TikTok right now has been great for extreme growth. Like, I mean, as I've seen personally, TikTok has extreme growth, but the people who are on TikTok are just not there yet. You know, they're still a younger generation. They may not have as much funds. Instagram is like one tier above that. Facebook is great, but it has limitations. Like you have to add them as friends and I may not want to add them, right? You only have a cap of 5,000 people, whereas Instagram, there's no cap and you can just keep creating more and more content and getting more and more followers. Yeah, but it's awareness. So you can kind of obviously uh, offload people from TikTok that may want to see different things that you're doing and maybe follow you more personally. And they'll you know follow you now on, on, on Instagram. And uh, again, their expectations are something different on Instagram than on TikTok. Um, it's just going to be a different way to communicate. I mean, I have multiple Instagram pages. I mean, it's funny. I, I have other pages that aren't my personal page that are more popular than my personal page. Um, and again, it's what are you communicating? What is it? And what are people resonating with? You know, one of them is just about, uh, wellness. Um, kind of some of the, uh, things going on, you know, almost polit- outside politically now in, in New Jersey. Um, another one is I, uh, buy, sell, trade, uh, sports cards like, uh, athletes. So your boy, Steph Curry, I'm, I'm assuming you're a Warriors fan. <laughs> Stuff like that. And I have a separate page for that. And that's a page that I built up to do um, transactions without having to pay uh, 14% eBay fees. And like I just sold a card on there for five grand to somebody 
in Laguna Hills last night. Five grand, doesn't know me. PayPal, boom. Do the deal, shipped it off. You know, so it's it's powerful. You know, like that that alone, having that page and building it up just saved me six hundred and like fifty bucks. Yeah, because they know you, right? They trust you because you're somewhat legitimate. You're not just some random person. Yeah, they see the history. They see I did other deals with other people. They see all my cards. They see they could look at my eBay store and see I've got great feedback. So again, if you have these different platforms, you know, somebody might want to do a deal on Instagram versus do a deal on eBay for whatever reason. Where I have stuff on, on Instagram that I don't have on eBay. So again, it's different different channels. And that's the key is is understanding that you can't always post the same stuff on every single channel the same way. It's not going to work for you if you're doing it like that. You've got to approach it differently on each channel. And I would say also having this large social presence helps a lot in business. Whereas like, let's say they come to someone for Harmony Loan, they actually prefer coming to me because they know that I'm a legitimate person versus some random guy that comes and calls them, right? They know that I'll get the deal done. Um, even likewise, when it comes to real estate deals, you know, I have agents coming to me and sending us offers, whereas they normally wouldn't because they know that we are actually serious buyers in the market. You're established. Yeah, we're established. You're creating that you're established, you're, you've been here, you know, and you haven't gotten kicked off of the platforms, which is also, which is also okay because there's a lot of censorship going on. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, people need to also just figure out again to what works best for them, right? So don't do something just to check the box. You actually have to have a plan of why, why am I doing this? Why do I want to do this? There's got to be an end goal in mind. You don't want to aimlessly step into something because then you're not, you're just, you're going to fail at it. Unless you have purpose. It's good to, to get on these platforms and try things out to see what works and then figure out from there kind of how you want to approach it. But if you're not doing anything on social, pick one and then get somewhat good at it. Get some engagement. You know, if it's Facebook, figure out how Facebook works. And then I think you're going to get a better education once you build that audience on Instagram and how to build Instagram. Because right now, if, you were, if you've got a lot of following on Facebook... Let's just say you've got 4,000 people on, on Facebook and you don't have an Instagram. It could take you two years to get to 1,000 people on Instagram, even though 4,000 people are friends with you on Facebook. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a different channel and people struggle with that. And I see people think that, oh, Instagram is going to be easy because I was successful at adding all these friends on Facebook. It's not the truth because, again, you can't just do the same thing on Facebook on Instagram. They're going to be like, why am I? following this person on these two platforms. I'll just, um, I'll not follow him. I'll just follow what I want to follow on Instagram because I just want to see these things and see these things only. And that's actually why I created separate channels on Instagram because uh, even with all the craziness that's been going on with COVID, I wanted to not see a lot of that stuff. So I had, you know, my card channel and I had my politics channel and I could separate it when I wanted to jump in and get in on and find out what's going on with cards. I could do that without being distracted by what was going on in the world or what's going on in real estate or because it's all distractions and you can use all your different platforms the same way. So if you wanted to create an Instagram and have it not be about real estate at all, it could be about whatever hobby you want, you know, you could actually create a nice following from that. So like, I think my sports cards following, some of them know I'm in real estate and have followed me on my real estate page and have followed my Jersey Shore lifestyles page because we connected you know, we talked, we maybe had a discussion through DM. And like, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, cool. I'm going to follow you. And you could actually build up your other channels just by maybe having conversations about your hobby. Yep, absolutely. 
All right, Justin, well, it's been a great have you back on the show. Thanks again for chatting about you know, building your brokerage and about your social media strategy. Do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end our show today? Yeah, I mean, I, I covered a lot, obviously, but I think he, everybody should sit down and come up with some sort of game plan for the next year as far as where they want to be and, and really figure out what your what your hourly worth is, uh, figure out you know what you want to do, um, cut out the 25%, come up with a game plan, figure out a way to get an assistant. You know, so it may not necessarily mean you got to go hire somebody. You know, you may be able to align with a couple of other agents and share in that assistant or go to your mortgage guy and say, Hey, do you have somebody that can help me with A, B, and C? And they may say, Sure, title company, all these ancillary businesses, they want your business. They want you to do more business because they make more money when you do more business. So look around at your sphere, look around at all the different businesses. And it doesn't necessarily have to even be real estate. It could be your financial advisor, could be your buddy who's in the restaurant business, just collaboration is always great and helping people out. I, like I said, I have a lot of business owners that I'm friends with. I talk to them about their business all the time and my business. And we have all these different conversations and we're able to link up on different things and help each other out, even if it's not real estate. So just talk to people at the end of the day. Awesome. And how can people find out more about you? Uh, so I'm on Instagram, Justin Bozak, Facebook, Justin Bozak. You go on YouTube, Jersey Shore Lifestyles is our uh, community page. You can follow us either the Ocean 6 group or Remax Revolution on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. Awesome. Well, Justin, thanks again for being back on the show. And hopefully it's not two more years before you come back on. <laughs> we'll be good to see you again soon, brother. Congrats on the uh, success. Thank you, thank you. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.